Good morning, church. Happy 4th of July weekend. And if you're watching us online, good morning and welcome to you. If you're in the great room, we love you. Maybe we'll see you in passing between services. If you're in one of the other venues in Watertown, Aberdeen or Huron, butchered that, sorry. We love you guys and we're excited that you're uh, joining with us to worship this morning. Uh, I, I've been thinking this week, I don't know if it's because Father's Day was just a few weeks ago or 4th of July and you're in a sentimental moment, but I've been thinking about parenthood this week and just thinking about how the process of learning to be a parent is really difficult because there's no guidebook on how to do it. You know, like pe- people joke about how when you have a child, no instruction manual comes with it, uh, with your child. And, and that's funny until you're getting ready to be discharged from the hospital with your first child. And you're thinking, but no, really, where, where is like an instruction manual on how, how to do this thing, right? And, and I remember when we left Sioux Falls uh, with our first child, uh, we had this great medical team who helps take care of us and they discharge us and the nurse takes us out to the car and she loads the car seat and then they're going to leave. And I think, well, that's pretty irresponsible. I don't know what I'm doing. You shouldn't let me leave with this child, right? I, I need you to come with me and show me how, how to raise this human being that you've entrusted to my care, right? And as a parent, biblically speaking, I think God gives us these little lives to steward and to cultivate and it's terrifying. Kids are little sponges. They absorb everything, right? And so they, they, the things that they pick up, it's just constant. They're learning all the time, which is both good and challenging as a parent because you think, oh, man, whatever I say, they're, they're just taking in. And you realize so much of parenthood is, is cultivating godly dispositions and godly attitudes while also pruning out behaviors and dispositions and things that, that are not biblical, Right? And so I, I was thinking back to a few weeks ago when our family took a trip out to uh, Custer State Park. In the middle of all the craziness, we thought, well, camping is probably safe. And so we took the kids on their first camping trip. And while we were out there, one of the things that I'd wanted to do in the Black Hills was find the poet's table. If you don't know what the poet's table is, it's this fun hike where you find this table and a little cabinet that's been placed up on a mountain and, and people leave writings there. And the instructions to it are really vague, so it's sort of like a treasure hunt. So I had the kids excited, like, yeah, we're going to find the poet's table. And so we went out day one. We are, we are ready to find this thing. And we set out on this hike, and my three-year-old is wearing flip-flops because as a parent, there's some battles you don't fight. You know what? I'm not going to die on that hill. You can wear flip-flops. And you know what? It turned out great because 100 yards in, she goes, Dad, hold me. I was like, oh, no. So for, for, for five miles, I had a three-year-old on my back. So if my posture is terrible, it's because I now need a chiropractor because my three-year-old has destroyed my spine. And, and so we set out on this hike, and we find nothing. Next day, we, we search for the poet's table. We find nothing. Finally, day three, it's like 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And, and, I, and I tell the kids, like, all right, this is our time. This is our last day. We're going to find it. And so we set out on this hike. And three o'clock is dangerously close to dinner time. And so, I mean, meltdowns are likely to happen. We finally, day three, we find the poet's table and we have this great moment. The kids are like, yeah, dad, we found it. And we explore it and, and, and we spend some time there. And then we, we get ready to head down and it's kind of a steep hike up there. And we saw this other route that we thought, you know, this way looks a little bit easier. And so we start down the, this other path and we scramble down these rocks. We get down there and lo and behold, there's no trail there. 
And we turn around and look up and the way back is pretty steep. And my three-year-old is again in flip-flops. And so we go, okay, that's not going to happen. We, we've committed to our course of action. And so we, we are straight up bushwhacking at this point, right? We're like weeding our way through the forest, getting scraped up and we're hot and dirty and tired. And initially the kids love it. It's an adventure. But as we get closer to like 4.30, 4.45, they're hungry, lots of emotions, and we're still have no idea where we're at. And finally, my oldest, I hear her ask Lauren, she goes, Mom, does Dad know where he's at? <laughs> like, oh, that's a vote of non-confidence, I think, right? And, and Lauren goes, uh, she goes, well, I don't know where we're at, but I'm sure Dad knows. And, and I can see her nervousness building, and she comes up to me, she goes, Dad, do you know where we're at? And I said, well, I don't know exactly where we're at, but I know where we're headed, and that's more important, right? And, and so we, we continue to bushwhack our way through, and we're like 10 minutes from total family collapse, meltdown, all the emotions, everyone's hungry and grumpy, and we finally stumble our way back onto the trail. And there's this moment of relief of like, okay, like we're just a couple minutes from the car. But, but I stopped, and, and I pulled my oldest aside. I said, Isley, come here. I said, I want to I wanna just, I want to talk about this with you for a second. And I said, it's really important in these moments when, when you're not sure where you're at, you're not sure what decision to make. I said, it's really important to do a couple things. I said, number one, you want to never panic. I said, when you panic, you, you, you make bad decisions, you do things without thinking, and it can be really dangerous. But I, but I also said, I said, it's really important when you're out in a situation like this to pay attention to your surroundings. And, and I said, okay, listen carefully. She kind of put her ear up. I said, do you hear that waterfall? She goes, yeah, dad, I hear the waterfall. I said, well, I knew where the waterfall was. I didn't know where we were, but I knew where that was. And as long as we were headed towards it, I knew we could find our way back. And we had this moment where we just kind of stopped and debriefed what took place. And the reason we did that is because I want her to know next time she's in a situation that's uncertain and she's not sure how to navigate, I want her to be able to stop, remain calm, be aware of her surroundings and make wise decisions. Right? And as a parent, I'm trying to cultivate the, these just very basic life things into her. These are attitudes and dispositions that I want her, want her to have. And in other situations where there's a discipline moment, there, that, that's a, a moment of pruning. There's things in her that I'm saying, okay, these attitudes, behaviors, dispositions are not right and good, and we need to prune those things out. And, and I think in a snapshot, that, that is parenting. It's cultivating and it's pruning. And the reason I, I talk through this this morning is John chapter 15 walks us through a very similar kind of scenario of our Heavenly Father with us. John chapter 15 is all about a God who cultivates and prunes his people so that we will become more and more Christ-like. And so for us, it's a journey of what is it like to have our Heavenly Father father us in the most perfect way possible. Because as believers, there's this core idea that we are called to bear the fruit of Christ-likeness. That as we walk with Jesus, our lives should more and more reflect who he is and who he's calling us to be. So I want to dive into that this morning. John chapter 15, as we explore this reality that we are called to bear the fruit of Christ-likeness. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, says this. It says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You were already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything I've learned from the Father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. So again, I come back to that assertion that I made at the beginning, that the call of the Christian life is to bear the fruit of Christ-likeness, that we are to more and more reflect the heart and the character of who Jesus is. Now, I think Galatians chapter 5 gives us a very clear picture of what this fruit looks like. As Paul is teaching the church in Galatia, he says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And you'll notice if you read the letter to the church in Galatia, when Paul says this is the fruit of the Spirit, you notice he doesn't say plural fruits. This is the fruit. When the Spirit is in you, when the presence of God is residing and living in your life, the fruit of your life is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what comes out of you because that's what is being formed in you. And I think when you read John chapter 15, Jesus calls the believers over and over again to remain in him, to abide in him, and to see the fruit that his presence bears in their life. Now, there's all sorts of questions. How, how do we bear this fruit? How do we cultivate it? What does it look like? How do we respond to the pruning process? All sorts of these questions, I think, rightfully emerge from this text here. So I want to start with this, this key truth. And the key truth is this, that Jesus claims to be the true vine. He says, my father is the gardener and I am the true vine. And, and the idea there is Jesus uses this agricultural metaphor. You can picture a, a vine that, that's snaking its way through maybe across a trellis, right? And on this vine, there are branches that shoot off of the vine. And what we know is that if you, if you cut a branch off of the vine, right, it ceases to bear fruit. It ceases to be alive because without that branch's connection to the vine, it can't draw nutrients from the soil. It, it, it can't draw water from the soil. It, 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 it ceases to exist because its life is found in the vine that it's a part of. And so when Jesus says, I am the true vine, I think he's saying something incredibly significant. Part of what Jesus is communicating is that in Jesus, in living and remaining and abiding in him is hope and life that we cannot find on our own. So for me, this raises one question right off the bat. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And I thought that little adjective, true, that, that struck me. I am the true vine. So that made me ask this question, well, well then are there false vines? Are there things that we try to root our life in that ultimately don't bring the life, hope, and significance that we would hope for? And I think often we attempt to root our life in things like the approval of other people. We try to root our life in the possessions that we have, the social status and standing that we perceive. We try to root our identity, our meaning, purpose, and significance in other relationships. 
I, I see this often in young couples who are preparing for marriage. There's this idea that when I get married, my spouse will make me happy and whole and fulfilled. It's this romantic idea that we see in Hollywood that this person will complete me. And to that I say, listen, that is an unrealistic ideal because they are a broken, sinful person. And what you're looking for is only found in Jesus. So if you look for your spouse to complete you, fulfill you, make you happy and whole, it's not going to happen. You need to find that in Jesus and bring your journey of redemption together as husband and wife and pursue him together, right? And there's all sorts of things that we attempt to root our life in, to find meaning, purpose, significance, hope, a reason for existing. But Jesus declares, I am the true vine. You want to know the fullness of life? Root your life in him. Now, if you're a Jewish person in the first century and you're hearing this teaching of Jesus, you're picking up on an entire other dimension of this uh, text. A Jewish person in the first century, they would be familiar with the Old Testament uh, metaphors that consistently describe Israel as a vine and Israel as a vineyard. So listen to these two texts. The first is uh, Psalm chapter 80. I want to give you just two examples of this. Psalm chapter 80, beginning in verse 7, says this. It says, Restore us, God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. You transplanted a vine from Egypt, right? Talking about the exodus of the people of Israel. You drove out the nations and you planted it. You cleared the ground for it and it took root and you filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade and the mighty cedars with its branches. Let me give you another example. This is Isaiah uh, chapter 5. And Isaiah chapter 5 beginning in verse 3 says this. It says, Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I've done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I'll tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. And if you're a Jewish person in the first century and you're hearing this teaching of Jesus, what you know is that almost every time in the Old Testament that Israel is described as a vine or a vineyard, it's often in the context of judgment where the people of Israel have been unfaithful and unrighteous and they have failed to bear the fruit that God has called them to bear. Did you catch that in Isaiah? God says, this vineyard that I planted and cultivated, they were to be God's covenant people in relationship with him. He called them to live a righteous life and the nation of Israel could never do it. The Old Testament is a story of the people of Israel trying to live a righteous, law-abiding life, adhering to the word of God and failing and failing and failing. And now they hear Jesus saying, I am the true vine. And what he's communicating is he says, you remain in me and you'll bear much fruit is this idea that you cannot have righteousness on your own. If you are part of the nation of Israel and you're hearing this teaching of Jesus, you're going, yeah, this is our history. We've been unable to bear the fruit of righteousness over and over again. We've heard those prophetic words like Isaiah brought. And now you hear Jesus saying, I am the true vine. If you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. And church, what I want us to recognize from this is we cannot live a righteous, good, holy life apart from Jesus. This is not about striving on our own. This is about remaining connected to the vine of Jesus and experiencing grace, transformation, and life that we cannot have on our own. So here's the question, right? How do, how do we bear this fruit of Christ-likeness? 
And, and I think because we're an industrious people and we live in a very pull yourself up by your bootstraps culture, our thought is if we're called to bear the fruit of Christ likeness and the fruit of righteousness, we can just try really hard and we can put our nose to the grindstone and we can make this thing happen. But I think what Jesus calls us to in John chapter 15 is to bear fruit by abiding, not by striving. Right? This isn't about trying really hard to be good enough. If you want to do a little bit of homework, it would be um, interesting to read through John chapter 15 for you and count every time Jesus says the word remain. Remain, 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 remain. And that word remain is uh, also translated in some translations as abide. And this idea of abiding is to set down roots, it's to be planted, and to abide is to live with, to dwell with, right? And what Jesus says is, remain in me and you will bear much fruit. I mean, notice what he says in verse uh, 5. He says, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. He doesn't say, if you remain in me and you try really hard. No, he just says, remain in me. And the byproduct of abiding and living and dwelling in this intimate relationship with Jesus that he calls us to, the byproduct of remaining rooted in him is that your life will bear the fruit of Christ-likeness. We'll talk more about why that's so in a second. And really, it's this idea of remaining in Jesus, of living out the identity of who God is already forming and shaping us to be. Notice verse 3. Jesus says this. He says, you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. If you open up your life to Jesus and you receive the life-giving hope that he brings, you believe his word, you trust his teaching, and you build your life on it, you, you become rooted in him. He says, you are already clean. That Jesus makes us righteous. But the beautiful thing is that he doesn't just declare us righteous, but Jesus begins to transform us from the inside out so that we become what he has already declared us to be. He makes us clean. And now he says, all right, let's go to work in in the pruning and shaping and forming process. But again, it's about abiding and remaining rooted in him. And, And you'll notice that there's two dimensions to this idea of abiding. First is we remain in Jesus. And this is to say that as you've opened up your life to him by God's grace, right? He chose you. He appointed you, John says. I think this means as we abide in him, as we've opened up our life to him, it means being a people of prayer, being a people of the word, being a people of of corporate worship. Continue to open up your life and be receptive to the movement and the work and to the voice of the spirit in your life. That's remaining in him. But did you also notice that Jesus says, if you remain in me, I will remain in you. And and the beautiful hope of the Christian faith is not just that we remain in Jesus, but it's that the God of all creation and the power of his Holy Spirit resides in you. So I think of Galatians 2, 20, where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Right? What a beautiful truth that Paul says, Jesus resides in me in this life of faith that Paul is living. He goes, I live that because of the power of God that's at work within me. And there's this promise that as we abide with Jesus, he will abide and remain with us, transforming us, redeeming us, and shaping us from the inside out to be a people who reflect the Christ-like character of who he is. Now, here's the hard part of the process. I I love it if we could just focus on the cultivating part, the part where Jesus abides in us. Like, that's great. But then we get to this little word that talks about pruning. 
And when I read that word, uh, it says that every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. And when I think about pruning, I think of, of cutting away things that are no longer living, right? If you have a vine and it's got these branches, the branches that are not producing fruit are, are not life-giving. You, you, you prune those out, you cut them off and remove them so that the vine can be even more fruitful. But when I think of that process of, of cutting away, to me, that sounds challenging. That sounds difficult. I go, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't know if I signed up for the pruning part of this process. But there's an urgency to this. Did, did you notice what else Jesus says? He says, no branch can bear fruit by itself. You must remain in me. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire. Previously, he says, the father cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. In other words, if our lives are not reflecting the, the Christ-like fruit of righteousness that God has called us to bear, that bear witness to the transforming, redeeming work of what Jesus Christ is doing in us, if that fruit is not seen in our life, we are in danger of judgment. Because by the lack of fruit, the lack of holiness, the lack of Christ-likeness in our lives, we, we are demonstrating uh, 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 that our faith is not truly living. We are not abiding and remaining in Jesus. But the hope is that if we abide in him, he will remain and abide with us and transform us and redeem us. This is a beautiful work of grace. But that also means that if you're a believer and you're walking with Jesus and you see that fruit of transformation and redemption, God is going to prune our lives as we continue on that journey of holiness. So let's walk through this pruning process because I think this is fundamentally important. Notice that the pruning process is promised. It says every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. It doesn't say, oh, some of you might slide by, maybe he won't prune. No, if you are bearing the fruit of Christ-likeness, you are progressing in that spiritual journey, you are becoming more and more faithful to, to living out obediently God's word in your life. God is going to prune you. He's going to cut away things that are not life-giving. There are attitudes, dispositions, beliefs, behaviors, things that God will remove from our life so that we more and more reflect who he is. Now, the beautiful part is, yes, pruning is promised, but it's also a loving process. Is it hard? Yes, pruning is hard. It's sometimes really difficult when God says, hey, there's this thing in your life that we need to deal with. Let's remove that thing because it's not life-giving. That, that's difficult. But the beautiful reality is when Jesus describes his father as the gardener in verse 1, this is not a haphazard gardener who, who is just ripping things out of the garden. The image that you get is of a gardener who lovingly, tenderly cultivates and prunes and cares for this garden. When you look back at the Old Testament allusions to this idea of God as the gardener and the people of Israel as the vine, notice what he says in verse 4 of Isaiah uh, chapter 5. He says, what more could I have done for my vineyard than I've done for it? I cultivated it. In, in Psalm 80, it says, I transplanted this vine from Egypt. He brought them out of captivity and brought them to the promised land. And you get this image of God who is tenderly, gently caring for his people, cultivating and pruning their lives. So is that pruning process difficult? Yes, it's sometimes hard. But know that God is pruning your life out of a place of love for you. Because here's the reality, is that pruning is about our holiness, not our happiness. 
pruning is about our holiness, not our happiness. And sometimes what we do is we come to this idea of, of the gospel and we assume that, that Jesus died on the cross to, to give us the American dream, to give us a good life, a life free of problems and struggles and hardships. And so when we encounter difficult things, we go, Jesus, this wasn't part of the bargain. What are you doing? But I think Jesus offers us something much deeper than happiness. Happiness is always built on external circumstances so that when my circumstances are good, I can be happy. When my circumstances are challenging and difficult, then I'm, then I'm unhappy, I'm discontent. But Jesus offers us something so much deeper. He didn't come to make you happy, he came to make you holy. To be holy is to reflect who he is and to experience the fullness of joy that only he brings. So let me ask this question. When we think about pruning, what kinds of things might be cut out of our life? So I want to look at Ephesians 4 as we look at some things that, that might be cut out of our life. This is Paul writing to the church in the city of Ephesus. He says this in Ephesians 4 verse 29. He says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now catch this. He says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. I think that passage is a great picture of cultivating and pruning. What kinds of things might we be pruned out of our life? Notice he says, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. And listen, church, I don't think by unwholesome talk, it's easy to let ourselves off the hook, Right? I'm not saying the really bad words. Maybe I'm, I'm not even saying cuss words. Like that, that's, not, that's not the problem. But I think unwholesome talk is more holistic than that. Because we can let ourselves off the hook by saying, like, I'm not telling the dirty jokes and I'm not saying the cuss words when I hit my hand with the hammer. I'm being good. But let me ask you this. Are, are you gossiping about somebody else and tearing them down? Do you get a little jolt of joy when you can share with a coworker what this person said or did? Like, yeah, hey, I just see the boss ripped into them. Let me... Ooh. But notice what Paul says. He says, but only what is useful for building others up. And then later Paul says, get rid of all anger, rage, malice. There, there's a great checklist, I think, to look at our life and go, are some of these things present? Do I find myself reacting and responding with anger? Are there moments where rage just bubbles up in me? Maybe those are things that God wants to put his, his finger on in your life and bring some conviction about. But the pruning process is this moment where God removes attitudes, behaviors, dispositions, and beliefs that are not of him. He cuts those things away, removing them from our life so we more and more reflect who he is. And part of the reason I think this is so important is that without pruning, we invest our lives in things that are not life-giving. If God does not prune out the things that are not of him, I think we're so prone to root our lives in all sorts of false vines, to try to find meaning, purpose, and significance in all sorts of other ways. And so when God removes things from our life, he's removing things that are not life-giving so that we might be rooted and set down deep in him. So let, let me talk quickly about the impact of a pruned life. As God cultivates a holy life in us and removes things that are not of him, notice what John says about how our life will be impacted. I think, first of all, we see that our prayer life looks different. Did you notice what he says in verse 7 and verse 16? He says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Again, in verse 16, he says, I chose you and appointed you so that you might bear fruit that will last. And so whatever you ask in, my in the name of my Father, he will give you. Our prayer life suddenly looks different. 
And it's not that God some, becomes some sort of cosmic genie that just gives us whatever we want. It's this idea that as we follow Jesus and become more Christ-like, our heart, our heart is more and more aligned with the heart of God. And we find ourselves praying in accordance with his will, walking in obedience to his truth and to his word as we remain and abide in him. And your prayer life begins to look fundamentally different. I, I think secondly, a, a life that is proving the impact is that God is glorified. Notice what he says in verse eight. This is to my father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. The, these two go together. So God is glorified as secondly, our identity is made known. You can tell who the disciples of Jesus are because the fruit of Christ's likeness, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, those things that Paul talks about in Galatians are just so evident in the life of a believer. And, and when we live that way, especially right now, I mean, we live in a very, I mean, when I read Paul's Ephesians 4, the anger, rage, malice, it's like, ooh, Paul, that's a great apt description of, uh, description of the culture we live in. We live in a culture where rage and anger and malice, and, and it's not just unbelievers. I see this in the church too. We get very opinionated and in that opinionated nature, we, we want to say things with anger and rage and malice. And, and maybe sometimes we lapse into a little bit of slander, which Paul also addresses. And, and what Jesus calls us to is when, when we are bearing the fruit of Christ's likeness, right? And he comes back to this uh, command to love one another. He says it twice. If you remember back to John chapter 13, Jesus said it three times there. Now he comes back and says, my command is that you love one another. So if you want to talk about a snapshot of Christ's likeness, all boiled down, it's love one another as I've loved you, right? Jesus comes back to that twice. And church, as we live out that identity of Christ's likeness, the world around us begins to take note and say, there's something different. Those Christians are weird, you see all that we're going through right now and why are they so joyful? Why do they treat people with kindness? Why, why in the world are Christians so compassionate? Right, that, that's, that's what a lost world should be saying. And, and this doesn't mean that we don't speak truth, right? I, I addressed that a couple weeks ago. Truth and love have to go hand in hand. So please don't hear me saying you don't say hard things. That's not what I'm saying. We call people to truth. But I think when the fruit of Christ's likeness is seen, people look at the difference of our lives and God is glorified as his character is made known in how we live. And we fundamentally bear witness to our identity as Christ followers. Now notice what else it says in, in chapter 15, verse 11. It says, if you keep my commands, this is verse 10, and remain in my love, just as I've kept the Father's commands and remain in his love, I have told you this, why? So that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And Jesus wants to experience a life that is rooted deeply in the joy that only he can bring. This is deeper than circumstantial happiness. This is the joy of a life that is rightly aligned and living in harmony with our creator. We are fundamentally designed and created to live in relationship with the God of all the universe. And what Jesus says is that you follow my commands, walk in my teaching, walk in the truth of my word, remain connected to Jesus as the source of life. And he says, my joy will be in you and your joy will be complete. What a beautiful way to live. I think it's important too that, that Jesus points out that a fruitful life is not one of obligation and duty. It's a relationship of love. Notice how he shifts uh, in verse nine. He says, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. When he talks about staying connected to the vine, when he talks about being obedient, to his command. He's not saying do this out of duty and obligation. He's saying my word of truth to you is, is a demonstration of God's love for us. 
He loves us so much that that Jesus died on the cross and calls us back to relationship with the Father, and he's given us his word to guide us in how to live out this life. And the commands that he calls us to, when he says love one another, he doesn't do that because he wants to be a fun hater. He calls us to live obediently to his truth because that's where we experience the fullness and completeness of our joy. And so walking in obedience is not something we do out of duty and obligation, but we walk in obedience out of love for Jesus. We come to this place where we go, Jesus, I love you. I want to walk according to the truth of your word out of love. And notice, by the way, that as as Jesus is teaching there, he says in verse 15, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything I've learned from the Father, I've made known to you. Now, this doesn't mean we don't have the heart of a servant, but it changes the way that we serve. A servant will do what they're told because they've been told. It's a command. I will follow through with obedience. But Jesus says, no, no, no. I've invited you into a relationship. I've invited you into a friendship. We still walk in obedience, but the difference is rather than doing what I'm commanded, it's Jesus, I love you. And as a friend of the God of all the universe, I want to walk in obedience and alignment with who you are and who you've called me to be. So what, what is a snapshot of this fruitful life look like? I think it ends in verse 17. This is my command, love each other. Verse 9, Jesus says, remain in my love, walk in obedience. Verse 17, this is my command, love one another. And on the, on, on the surface, that looks really simple. Yeah, go love one another. But you realize that to really love one another, you must first remain rooted in the vine. Even when I think about my family and loving my wife, loving my kids well, in a hundred ways, I'm an incredibly selfish person and I can only love them well as Jesus transforms and redeems me and as the Spirit, by His grace, empowers me to love. And so what you realize is that to love one another is only possible if Jesus is transforming and redeeming and shaping us. And so this morning, I want to give you some reflection questions to think about. And I would encourage you to take these with you this week and and to think and reflect on them. But what fruit is your life bearing? What does the fruit of your life reveal about the condition of your heart? Who and what are you abiding in? What are you rooting your life in? Where are you looking for the source of life and hope? Is there something that God is cultivating in your life? Maybe there's an attitude, a disposition, one of the fruit of the spirit that God is saying, we need to cultivate this. Is there something that God is pruning out of your life? That you've begun to feel the conviction of the Spirit saying, there's this thing in you, this behavior, this attitude, this way of doing life that is not of me. And you, you felt the conviction of the Spirit. Let this be a moment where you lean into that and say, Jesus, I want you to continue to prune that out of my life. And, and I think it's fitting that we're taking communion this morning. Because in communion, it, this is not only a moment of remembrance, but in In believing that it's a sacrament, we believe that we're encountering God's grace anew and afresh in this moment. And so here's what I would encourage you to do. As we take communion this morning, use this as a moment of prayer. Say, God, that that thing that you're cultivating in me, would you grace me to live that out? That, That thing that you're pruning from my life, that thing that is not of you, that you are cutting away, that you are removing from me, God, would you give me the grace to let that go and to walk in the victory that only you can bring? And so what I want you to do is just take a minute of prayerful reflection and ask God to pour his grace into that area of your life. And I'm going to come back in a minute and then we'll, we'll take communion together as a community. But go ahead and pray and reflect for a second.